Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. And this guy that I am talking to today, he is a rock star, speaker, author, noted authority on personal leadership, how to turn turmoil to triumph. Boy, if that doesn't speak to the heart of the Intentional Encourager podcast, I don't know what does. And as we were talking before we started recording, guy's an avid football fan. I got, I love it. You know, we, and then we were talking we could talk football all day, but we're going to talk about things that are going to help you today. My guest, Dave Sanderson, joins me here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Dave, how are you today? I am outstanding. Thank you so much. I'm blessed to be here with you today. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Dave, I'm, again, I want to get your perspective. Okay. I want to start here because I live in, in the Huntington, West Virginia area. You live in the Charlotte area. I want to get perspectives from guests around what the last year has been like. Namely, what's been an unexpected benefit to you around this COVID-19 pandemic? Because it's affected everybody in different ways and different processes and things like that. Take me through the last year through your business and your speaking and, and writing and things like that. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, like everybody, everybody's had some challenging times this last year. But, you know, I, one of the things I learned coming out of a plane crash and a situation like I went through is there are ways to grow out of things. And I was very blessed to be able to do actually do a TED Talk and an article around me around, it's called Post-Traumatic Growth Syndrome, How to Grow Out Traumatic Life Events. So this last year when all this happened, especially in the speaking business, I mean, candidly, no one was having events. And for the first three to four months, no one was even having virtual events. So it was, um, you talk about a trying situation for somebody who's primarily in speaking slash workshop slash interaction like that. It was challenging. So, I, you know, one of the things that I, I started doing, which turned out to be a tremendous benefit for me, is when this thing really started picking up speed, it was like the April, May timeframe, um, I, I made a commitment. I would call five people a day during the work week and just check in. And, you know, I, and I was, I was hearing so many different things that were going on with people that I hadn't maybe spoken to in maybe one, two, 10, 15 years. And whether it's from a business people, and I learned some things about supply chain that, you know, how companies are challenged the supply chain or really from people who are just struggling. One of the things I realized is, you know, it was a lot like a plane crash because it happened. It wasn't our fault and you have to deal with it. And many people I realized, Brian, over the last year have never gone through a traumatic life experience to this level. And so I, I first, I felt like I had, at least I had a, a leg up on at least understanding going through something like, you know, something, a challenge situation. But then I was figuring how can I help people through the situation because, mm -hmm. you know, everybody, I mean, whether you lost your paycheck or you got COVID or you're, you were so dug in on this election that you couldn't even talk to a friend anymore. 
Or you had questions around social justice questions. I mean, there are so many, so many things. That's why I call it, it wasn't just one thing. Mm-hmm. That's why I call it turmoil. You know, my new talk is turmoil to triumph because it was all these different things that came into turmoil just stacked on each other. So I think one of the major benefits was I got to connect with a lot of people. And it gave me the opportunity to write my new book and really detail some things around my past that helped me that day on the Hudson River and have helped me grow since then. Well, Dave, you you really hit on something there in, in the fact of checking in with people connecting with people and and that that's near and dear to my heart that's what my book people buy from people is about is about connection when you started reaching out to those people what was that what was that moment like i i can i'm trying to put myself in that moment where a lot of people might have said oh my goodness dave man it's great to hear from you what was that aha moment for you around connection as you started checking in with five people? I love that. Five people a day. That's nothing. That is nothing to do. That was basically 30 minutes of my day. Exactly. Or or more. But what was, did you have that, I, I would call that a V8 moment around connecting with yeah, people no, you had connected with? I agree. I think the react, a lot of reaction, because some of the people I have spoken to was like, wow, Thanks for calling, right? It's like no one's checking in with me because one of the things that the aha moment really came was people weren't doing that and people were so thriving for connection. I mean, there's six human needs that everybody has and one of them is connection. But when I found you this whole situation, that was, even though that may not be the primary need you sort of reside in 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 your life, for the last several months it was because you couldn't go out. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't go see people. You couldn't do the things you were normally doing. And people started regressing and becoming, HGs were sloppy, sloppy in their appearance, sloppy in the way they were talking. I realized that a lot too, Brian. It was like, simply just got sloppy the way that you were interacting with people, weren't professional, right? And I was like, okay, in this conversation, we can be that way. But if you're trying to go out and find a job or try to, you know, promote yourself, I mean, you got to be on the top of your game. Right. So it also, on my benefit, helped me practice staying in front of people. So when I started presenting again, whether it was virtually or live or a hybrid, I was at the top of my game because I had already been interacting with people and I could help, you know, help read people because I was doing this. And I think that was one of the greatest benefits out of this. So I, I just, I, I encourage people, you know, pick up the phone and, you know, I still, we still, we do the zoom stuff and I get zoomed out like everybody else. So I'd rather like just, I just did a few minutes ago. Pick up the phone, call somebody. Yeah, call and, somebody. and Dave, yeah. You, you know the thing about it is, and 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 I'll full disclosure. I'm kind of an old head in sales. I've been in sales and customer engagement and in customer management for over 25 years. And and you 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 think okay, you've got to constantly be reinventing new ways, new things, keep it fresh, keep it new. But you just said something there that was really powerful. A lot of people think, well, we've got to virtually sell. I want to look my customer in the eye. I want to look at it. And, and, and it's, it's a powerful tool for a podcaster because, you know, I, I want to make eye contact with you. I want to make sure that we're, we're connecting and communicating, but there is nothing as powerful as hearing somebody's voice on the other end of a phone 
were just going, you know what? I just wanted to talk. I just wanted to share. What were you getting back from people as you were just picking up the phone and calling them and saying, hey, look, you don't have to get in front of a camera for me. I don't have to get in front of a camera for you. You don't have to look camera ready. What was that like for you, the reactions you were getting back as you were just picking up the phone and calling people? I think first it was people were startled. They were startled that someone actually picked up the phone and called them. I think that was number one. But going back to something you just said, um, hits home with me because, you know, my, my latest book is about, you know, my mentor who's, who was started his own movie theater, movie house business in the Carolinas in 1929 during a depression. And he took me on as a mentee in 1984 and for 13, 14 years taught me these success principles. And a lot of it was around connection, right? Somebody, a lot of these lessons, I mean, cause he was going, you know, Brian, look at the, you look at this story and he, what this guy lived through. I mean, he owned between 1929, the time he retired, owned 80 plus movie theaters and restaurants in the Carolinas. Okay. He was ultimately successful, but started in 1929 when people had no disposable income. And he had to go sell movies. He had no money. Yeah. And he 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 put he and his mentor put together the, how to do it. And they passed it on. So that's why I'm old school. Right? I, I still rather pick up the phone and do a Zoom. You know, because well, Dave, let me let me jump in here. Yeah. If you don't know a lot about the Carolinas, and I do, I spend a lot of time working in the Carolinas. Every region of the Carolinas is uniquely different. If you go to the Asheville area. That's right. The mountain area. You can go, you can take, you can go from I-40 from Statesville to Asheville. And that's a region, you know, the, the Hickory area, the Black Mountain, Asheville area. That's its own region. You take 77 from Winston, you know, Winston-Salem and, and Statesville and that area, Greensboro. It's its own little region. You get over to, you get over to the triangle where you got Raleigh-Durham and Cary Sanders. and Chapel Hill. Yeah. And it's its own, it's its own region. Go to the eastern part of North Carolina. Down, you know, down in the in the down east, what they call the down east area. It's its own region. The Charlotte area is its own region. The Charlotte, Rock Hill, South Carolina area. That's amazing that your mentor had the foresight to be able to figure out what folks wanted in each region because of the differences in people. And I want to park on that for just a minute. Can you share with me before we go to break? Can you share with me why you think that your mentor was so successful being able to use those concepts in those different regions of North Carolina? I think Bill, his name was Bill. I think one of the things that Bill was a genius at, and I think it, it excludes, is that he wasn't too prideful to have a mentor who to get go to him and ask questions when he didn't know the answers. And his mentor, I think, is from somewhere down east in South Carolina. I don't know. His name was George. I don't know where he's from. But I think he, I mean, Bill had the forethought that, you know, I don't know everything. I'm a young guy. I've got a young wife. I'm trying to raise a family, and I love movie houses. I mean, and, and, you know, his dad was a farmer in the Carolinas, tobacco, right? 
So, and yeah. basically they would come to, come to Charlotte and, you know, basically bring the crops. So, I mean, he, he grew up in the early 1900s where and he didn't know much. He didn't finish school in 1917, ran into this guy. And for, for a number of years, he mentored him. So I think the answer to that question is, you know, you got to learn that you don't know everything. And there are people that will help you. But you have to be willing to reach out to them and ask for help. And I think that's what I did with him. He did with his mentor. And now I'm offering to other people is, you know, success leaves clues. It's not rocket science, right? But but other people have walked the talk. It's like Tom, I did, I, I ended up with this. I did a blog about Tom Brady right before the Super Bowl. And one of the things that Tom Brady said, it resonated with me. And I'm not a big Tom Brady fan, but what he said was true. He said, I've been doing this 20 years. I've seen all the plays. I've seen it, right? I know what's coming. And I think the, the clue he was giving for the next generation was there's people like him and Drew Brees out there that have seen it. Yeah. Take, be quiet, listen, right? You can learn a lot more and just not be, and come to come to us when you have a question. So I think that's, that's a long answer to a short question. No, I love it. I love it. Let's step aside, take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about the distinct advantage that people have and their pitch. I love yep. this, their pitch. Talking with author, speaker, Dave Sanderson here on the Intentional Encourager podcast back in just a moment. Hey everybody, Brian Sexton here. I want to tell you about our sponsor, SEO National. SEO stands for Search Engine Optimization. Now, what's that, you might say? Well, Search Engine Optimization helps you show up higher on search engines in front of paying customers for words that you as a business owner can monetize. What a great concept. SEO National is owned by my good buddy, Damon Burton, who's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Not only has Damon and his team worked with businesses of all sizes, from e-commerce startups to NBA teams and Shark Tank featured businesses, but more importantly, Damon and his team are about transparency, trust, and providing lifetime value. So much so that he still has his first customers after opening SEO National 14 years ago. Let me give you some intentional encouragement and call Damon and his team today at 855-736-6285 or go to www.seonational.com and get a free quote. Dave, let's, let's talk about the distinct advantage. I love this because... And I was just talking to a friend of mine about the unique dif differentiator. I would I would call it distinct advantage, di unique differentiator, what, whatever, however you term it. It's something that you have within you. But I want to know what your definition of the distinct advantage is. Well, thank you, because I, I think there's two parts to it. And the second part is as, if not more important. First part you sort of hit on, what you're uniquely gifted at. But the second part is what I learned, what you're most passionate about. Is once you put those two things together, that is your distinct advantage because you got two things coming together at one time. Yeah, you can be outstanding at something, right? You can be, you can be the best you're uniquely gifted at, but if you're not passionate about it, you're not going to go for it. Or if you're passionate about something, you may not have any gifts towards it. So when those two things come together is when I, how I define your distinct advantage. And that's my goal because I think it, it starts with personal leadership, leading yourself first. 
And that's why I call once you realize what these two things are, how they once you figure out how they come together and you get them together, that's what I call your pitch. Your point in time that changes everything. Because when the, when people like a Bill Gates or a Tony Robbins or or people like you know um, you know somebody who's uniquely standing, you know Steve Jobs, they have that and they were passionate. They're passionate about what they do. That's why they're so looked at. Like a Tony Robbins is looked at as a master motivator because he's passionate about what he does and he's uniquely gifted to be able to present it. And he never stops learning. So well, I think that's that's how I define it. Let's talk about Tom Brady for a second because you you, you piqued my interest with, with pro football there. When you talk about Tom Brady, the point in time for him that changed everything was the sick being a six-round pick in the New England Patriots. Right. And going to a place where all these other quarterbacks were taken ahead of him. And Brady can tell you all of the quarterbacks taken ahead of him. The first guy taken in that that draft that Brady was in was a guy named Chad Pennington, a guy I watched at Marshall University. Right. Play, play, Jets, right. Play, play quarterback. But Brady's pitch was, I got drafted in the sixth round. All these guys get drafted ahead of me. And, and you watch Tom Brady's progression – He's fourth on the depth chart. And he's third on the depth chart. Then now all of a sudden he's dra- he's backing up Drew Bledsoe. Drew Bledsoe gets hurt. Tom Brady goes in and he doesn't come out. And and so right. that I love what you said there. And and Breeze's probably Drew Breeze's pitch was when he separates his shoulder playing for the San Diego Chargers as a second round draft pick, and then decides he comes back. And they draft Phillip Rivers from North Carolina State. What would they get him in a, a trade with the Giants? And now all of a sudden, Drew Brees has got to go somewhere else to play football. Maybe that's his pitch where he ends up with the New Orleans Saints and becomes a, a Hall of Famer. When when you have people that discover their pitch, is a is is a person's pitch easily discoverable or is it something that is retrospectively discoverable well i think that's a good question i think it's a combination because one thing when you're talking about brady i think the other difference in brady and maybe even drew Brees, once he got to new orleans or somebody of that ilk was this yes he had he had a lot of things like that coalesce but he was with an organization that had standard New England, whether you like them or dislike them, they play to a certain standard. They don't need you, right? They, they, if you don't you don't play in our culture and our standard, you're not playing. I don't care who you are. So I think that one of the advantages that both he had and Breeze had and Michael Jordan had with Carolina, you know, is the same thing. They played with programs and held them to a standard. So to answer your question, I think once you understand your distinct advantage and understand these two things, you got to keep yourself holding yourself to that high standard because as soon as you let that standard go a little bit, you're just like everybody else. You're not, you're not unique anymore. What makes the new England unique is they play to a standard and they, and then and Belichick plays that way. Whether you like him or you don't like him, you know, this is how we play. This is why we won six Super Bowls, right? Yeah. We don't, we don't go backwards. No. Well, and Dave, I, I want to hit on this real quick too, as well. It goes back to, in your book, Moments Matter. 
it goes back to Tom Brady's probably his his distinct advantage was probably being at the University of Michigan playing behind a guy like Drew Henson who ended up playing Major League Baseball, ended up going the baseball route first and competing with a guy like that. Drew Brees plays at Purdue. You know, it goes back to those moments where if Drew Brees decides to play at, let's say he decides to play at Illinois instead of Purdue, do we ever hear of Drew Brees? If Tom Brady decides to play at USC and doesn't decide to go to Michigan, do we ever hear of Tom Brady? And sometimes in life, and I want to get your thoughts on this, sometimes in life, it's it's moments that we have years before the defining moment that really sets up that defining moment. When you think about moments mattering in in people, how should a should a person look back retrospectively? I want to build on the question I just asked you. Where does retrospection align with? introspection in in looking at moments in our life that matter i'll give you an example a personal example from that day on the hudson river um so if you know anything about my story i had to swim to save my life because the plane was going down i was never got on the wing i was waist deep in 36 degree water for seven plus minutes and when the plane started shifting it was going down i had to get off and i had to swim to save my life but then after I look back at it retrospectively, that moment really happened for me when I was 12 years old. Because when I was 12 years old, I was in Boy Scouts. I was for a thing called the Order of the Arrow, which is a camping and orienteering award recognition with the Boy Scouts, a very elite, you know, uh, you know, award. And I won't go through the whole story, but that weekend, you know, the group of boys that I was with, right, we didn't know each other. But you got to do all these, like I tell people, it was like, uh, you know, survivor on steroids, right? You got to do all these things. But one of the things we had to do, Brian, is we had to swim across the river to get to the next, get across the river next event. Now, we could have walked over the bridge, but we swam. And I started thinking after I did that swim and had to get off the bus, I said, was that the moment when I was 12 years old? It gave me the certainty to do what I had to do to jump because I may not have jumped in that water and swam if I didn't have that moment. So I think to answer your question, I think, yes, I think. People have these moments that you go through, and they may not register right then. But there's going to become a defining moment when something's going to happen. And we saw this last year with COVID, right? Or the social justice, whatever it was. Something's going to happen. It's going to trigger something in the past on how the, cho- the choice you made now is going to be totally different than the choice you may have made if you didn't have that experience. Man, that is so good. That is so good. Let's step aside, take another break. When we come back, I want to hear, I want Dave to to really dive in to his story. Surviving the miracle on the Hudson. You are going to want to stick around for this. Trust me, there is not only an incredible story behind it, but loads of intentional encouragement behind it. Maybe, Maybe you're listening to this podcast and you're in your own plane crash of a situation. Maybe your business is failing. Maybe something's going on. Relationship, a marriage is failing. And you're feeling like you're, you've just crashed and you're drowning. I want you to stick around and hear this incredible story from this incredible man. Dave Sanderson here with us today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Back in a moment. 
Hey, everybody, Brian Sexton. want to tell you about my new book, People Buy From People, 10 Powerful People Lessons from the Ultimate People Person, my dad. My dad was one of the greatest connectors that I ever knew. And he shared with me 10 connecting principles that I have used throughout my 25-year sales and sales management, customer engagement, and leadership career that I'm passing along to you. If you want to be a stronger, deeper, and more powerful connector, you've got to pick up a copy of People Buy From People. There are concepts in there that you may not realize help make you a power connector. You can go to Amazon and pick it up, Kindle if you're an e-reader and you like to do it that way, or now available on Audible. And there's one other way you can get a copy of People Buy From People. You can get one from me and I'll sign it for you. You go to intentionalmediaandpublishing at gmail.com and send me an email and I'll share with you the link on how you can get a signed copy. You can buy a signed copy directly from me. Again, People Buy From People. If you want to connect like never before, pick up your copy today of people buy from people and now let's get back to more great conversation here on the intentional encourager podcast dave let's get into your story and take me as far back as you want to go if you want to go past you know further back than 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 the the miracle on the hudson that's fine but i want to give you the room and the and the the, the freedom to really tell and, and really get into that story as well. But, but take us back as far as you want to leading up to that, that defining moment in your life. Well, thank you. I, I, you know, I'll try to be as succinct as I can, but here's the, really the, the key point that I try to really tell people. I wasn't supposed to be on that flight. I was scheduled to be on the five o'clock flight. So, after looking back at this, I truly believe that I was on that plane for a reason and a purpose. And, and to be, if you want to go one level deeper, I think God put me on that plane for a reason and a purpose. Uh, and because I was no way I should have been on that plane because I had a first class seat at five o'clock. You know, I, I went to back to seat 15A on flight 1549 on January 15th. So I had a numerologist tell me that I, there's some connection with the number 15 with me. And a part of that is, is about leadership. Uh, so I think, number one, I was on that plane for a reason. Um, you know, and, and like most people, I didn't pay attention. You know, I knew everything. Like we all think we know everything until something happens. And, we know, and then you realize you know nothing. Because you're not paying attention, so if I will, I'll go into a, a, a religious analogy. Because one of the things that happened with Jesus in the garden is the disciples fell asleep. He asked him to do one thing: pay attention, right? Yep. And the disciples couldn't even pay attention. In that one critical, defining moment in history, they couldn't pay attention. I didn't pay attention, but fortunately for me, you know, I. At least I got my mind together because after the planes crossed over the George Washington Bridge and we got 60 seconds left, you know, I tell people that people ask me all the time was, what's that last moment like when you think you're going to die? You're 60 seconds from death and you're looking death in the face. What is it like? And I tell people for me, I saw the movie of my life pass before my eyes. I saw things with clarity. I think that moment God was telling me, this is your life. This is your life. 
And I was thinking, you know, if I get another chance, I hope I get to finish this, right? Because I had a lot of unfinished business, including not paying the mortgage off, which is a goal my wife and I made. Making a little joke about that, but you know, you know, I had left a lot of a lot of things undone. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. What caused you to switch flights that day? Because you mentioned having a first class seat on the five o'clock flight out of out of the same out of the same airport going to the same destination. What was the series of events that caused you to to change your flight that day? We were on a third day of a business deal. I was a sales sales guy. Third day of a business trip. Ended up in Brooklyn. And I was in systems and distribution systems that day. We're talking about technology. And we wanted to be there when all the trucks and all the things were moving so we could see the patterns, right? Mm-hmm. So trucks don't begin on a nice 8 o'clock in the morning. They begin at 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so we went in at 5 o'clock because that's when it all was hitting. So we started our day at 5 o'clock, and we got done at 10 because the truck by that time were done. So at 10 o'clock, our day done. I'm in another three-day business trip. I'm ready to go home. So I called the travel agent and, and worked with her, and she put me on flight 1549. And I think that was a, a way for God to say, you need to be on this plane. If something's going to happen, you got to be on this plane. And because um, I think I think everybody on that plane was on the plane for a reason. Uh, so... I think, you know, and if you look at, you look at from the business perspective, one of the things I share share people from the business perspective is, you know, if we didn't have that passenger make up of the plane that day, we may not all been here because that, if you've flown out of New York, which I've done a number of times, I loose that you probably have done. It's a lot different passenger makeup than it is going out of Orlando. Yeah. I'll fly out of Orlando last week. I got bumped to first class immediately because I had all the points because everybody else was, you know, on vacation. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have business people on the plane with a business mindset. Because I believe if you would have flipped the passenger makeup of that plane that day, and you have people who never flew, freaking out, going crazy, now you have a different dynamic. Yeah. But business people are like, okay, I got to handle my stuff, right? I got to right. handle my stuff. I think that had a lot to play with what happened that day. And I think God put people on the plane for a reason and a purpose. Dave, because there's no it, way... Yeah, I'm oh, sorry. No, 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 no. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but but I, I've got to pull just a little more conversation out of that because did you guys know immediately that you were in trouble? You'd flown thousands of times before. Again, you just mentioned it. It's routine. It's routine for many of these people on the plane. Even in the middle of the afternoon, this is routine. I've flown hundreds of times. It, it's It's pretty routine. You know, and, and that's what I tell my wife. I'm like, look, if you're if you're gonna fly, I'm the guy you want to fly with. Cause I, you know, I we you, yep. you just when you fly a lot, you get to know the ins and outs. You you right. you, you do a lot of things and you, you just know what to do. You know how to do it. Did you know how quick did you know you guys were in trouble? Well, when I heard the explosion, didn't think a thing about it. It's like, okay, we going back to the airport. Because, as you just said, a seasoned flyer knows even the domestic flights have two engines. Yeah. Overseas flights have to have a minimum of three, right? And the other dynamic, which I knew, but I didn't think about, but I knew, is the plane was a 320 EOW extended over water, which means it had the makeup to be able to handle a water flight. So, you know, so you had extra, you know, lifers. Because if you're on a 320 
you don't have life preservers. So I, you know, I didn't know until I heard the captain say, this is your captain brace for impact. That's the moment I knew it was dire. I think now, because he said that within 90 seconds later or in the river. So he said at the last moment, which I think was a blessing because I think tell people, if he, I think if he, he or anybody would have talked and all of a sudden you got started thinking in your head going, right? He said the minimal thing he had to do to get people prepared. And I think that was another part of this. And people say, well, was he, how does he tell? I said, no, he didn't have time. He was, you know, people say, well, do you think he was praying? I said, I don't know if he was or not, but I was praying for him. Right. So I think, you know, I think God's hands were all over this plane. And I, I showed this picture of God's hands holding the plane because I think whether you believe in God or Jesus, which I do, you have to believe there's some external force because how does this happen this way? Yeah. In the busiest yeah. airport, on the busiest time, and the busiest in the busiest area, and it happens at 3.32 p.m., where 28 minutes later, all the ferries are starting to run to make their trips back and forth, and though the ferries are queued up, and 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 the Hudson River doesn't have much traffic. Because 28 minutes later, Brian, there's traffic. There's no way yeah. you can get down. So yeah, yeah, and and again, you put it in the only place. It's like playing. It's like it's like playing golf. You put it in the only place that you can in that moment. And I don't listen. I'm not trying to trivialize a plane crash and a sport. But again, if you're, if you're, you know, Captain Sullenberger has to put that in the only place he can for the maximum survival of the passengers. You can't put it in, you can't put it on the street. That's disaster. You have to put it in the river to give people a, a, a fighting chance. Talk to me about when impact actually happened. What was that moment like then when impact actually occurred? It was a violent hit. It was a very hard hit because I was towards the back of the plane and in the back of the plane hit first. And and he hit roughly between 100 and 120 miles an hour. So it was a hard hit. And I, you know, I tell people one of, the, one of the amazing things about this is and I talked to a number of captains, and that's one of the benefits that I get, Brian. I get to talk to captains and first officers, and this, this is one of the benefits. And they all, they all said one degree either way, either toppling into New York City or toppling into Newark at rush hour, or one degree down, you go straight to the bottom of Hudson, or one degree back, and you're toppling backwards. So, you know, he hit it at the right place at the right time in the right way to give everybody a shot. But then there's there's then now part is in. It hit so hard, the back back fuselage broke off. And now water's coming in immediately. Thirty six degree water, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so now you got thirty six degree water, and you're ankle deep in the water immediately. And back of the plane is waist to chest level deep water. So now you got another problem. Yes, yay, Captain First Officer, you got us down. But now you got now you got to pull together as a team, because if anybody goes sideways, right? Anybody gets a little crazy, and you're dealing with something that you should have to deal with. Now, instead of dealing with survival, this thing goes sideways. So I think, you know, the wa- and I talk about the water in the plane because he didn't feel the cold. Because, I mean, you were, it was 11 degree temperature, all right? It was cold. It's just cold. You live in West Virginia, up in the mountains, it's cold. Yes. But you don't feel that when you got adrenaline going, right? 
And so, but now you're fast action trying to get out of a sinking plane. Because I was in there for seven minutes and I couldn't get on the wing because the wing was filled up and the boat was filled up. But I had leverage, you know, because I was waist deep in the water, but I had leverage to be able to hold the plane and hold lifeboat next to the plane so people could get off on the wing. And I was the only person to have that leverage. So that's why I stayed inside the plane because people kept yelling, hold on, hold on. Because if you know anything about the Hudson River, it's got a very fast current. The plane floated down the river about a half a mile in 24 minutes. Not only did the plane float down the river, the, the lifeboat that was attached float out into the river. So they were now going out and they wouldn't even have a chance to get on the wing. That's why I had the leverage. So that's why I, I give whoever took the picture and put, put it on Good Morning America, I give them thanks because it showed, showed that picture of me holding on to this lifeboat. And that's how I found out I was the last passenger off the plane. Wow. And you had no idea, Dave, that, that, you know, you, you saw people continuing to move back and forth. Obviously you did not realize through this whole time, you were the last guy standing, right? Nope. Nope. Things were moving so quickly. Right. And people were walking down a wing. There's boats coming in. There's people jumping in the water because they feel that they feel the plane may be sinking. So they're trying to swim away, get away from it. I mean, there's so much, so many dynamics going on, right? You have a lifeboat over here where people are trying to get off the lifeboat. So I had no clue. I was focused on basically holding onto the boat. And then, and then when my time came, because my time came when I felt the plane shift and I, and I felt water going up my back. And the first thought that I had was Titanic. It's like, this sucker's going down, man. And the worst thing you could be is stuck inside a plane that was sinking in water. You have no outs. You have no outs, right? Yeah. So that's when I said, that's when I made the decision to jump and swim. And I said, thank, thank God my mom and dad made me learn how to swim because it served me. And then I looked back retrospectively to the 12 and when I swam across the river in, in Ohio in Boy Scouts. So I had a reference point that I could swim. I was a good swimmer, and I had a reference point that I could swim in a river, and I could get there. But I tell people it was the longest 10-yard swim of my life, linked to that wing, because not only was it 36-degree water, and I've been in the water for seven-plus minutes, and it's an 11-degree air temperature, but now you also had jet fuel. And that's why I wear glasses, because I got jet fuel in my eye. Wow. And we didn't know that until I got back to Charlotte. And they, they did the Palisades Medical Center did a tremendous job and may help me recover. But there's only so much you can do when you're not an eye specialist. When I got back, I found out I got had had some some other fuel stuck in my eye. So I tell people it's nothing is as easy as it looks on TV, right? Or in the movies, right? A little more challenging than you may have seen in the movies. But fortunately for me, that I, you know, my parents had made me learn skills that I had to employ that day. And that's what I, that's, that's my book, Moments Matters, about all these skill sets that had to coalesce. But then my next book is about how I got those skill sets. Yeah. And my mentor, Bill, who basically was teaching me the mindset, right, to be able to succeed in times of challenge. How, how accurate was the movie? How, how accurate was the movie? Because you and I were talking before we started recording about, another plane crash that's pretty close to me. And that's the Marshall plane crash of 1970. And I have a story around that that involves my dad, but you know, and, and I know the impact that it have has here in my area. 
and, and the We Are Marshall movie is pretty accurate. It, it's it's the, there are a few idiosyncrasies, but it's pretty accurate. How accurate was the movie depiction? If you were there, you lived through it. How accurate was the depiction? I think it's like your situation is fairly accurate. They took some liberties with a few things, um, which and my wife actually picked up one of them, which I go go wife. I didn't even pick up on it, but she did. Um, but I think it was fairly accurate. I think Clint Eastwood did as well as he could. But it's hard to recreate something like that um, in the conditions the way they were, right? So you look at a few things like, you know, it wasn't when they filmed it, it wasn't 11 degrees that day, right? Yeah. So it's sort of hard to do the. You know, it wasn't ice floating in the river when they filmed it, right? So things like that. So, but I think Clint Eastwood did a fabulous job. I, uh, I think he did as well as he could. And he, he got the essence of the story. And what I tell people, the story wasn't about the plane crash. It was about the journey of the captain. Did did any of the movie people reach out to you or any of the, the passengers on the plane to get your side of the story or to help tell the story? Uh, I was reached out by and I was invited. That's why I was in the movie. I had the opportunity to be in the movie with about 25 other folks. Uh, and what I tell you what was interesting is they got done filming that day and I was getting ready to leave. One of the producers came up. It started telling me my story. And I was like, whoa. I said, you did your homework. She goes, yes. I said, thank you for coming today. Because it was a difficult day, you know. Um, it was it was joyful and some challenges. But she knew my story inside and out. So that told me she did her homework on me. Un unreal. That, that's incredible. Yep. Dave, I want to be respectful of your time and the audience's time. From a situation like that, and, and, and what you survived and what you've been through in your life, what's your biggest piece of intentional encouragement for folks out there? Well, there's a lot, and this is one of my, my new books about, but I say right now, you know, yeah, I talk about, I relate this to what's going on in this world right now, because the meaning you attach to something produces the emotion of your life. And, you know, I saw people who attach meanings of that plane crash were devastation so their life went a different direction where i i my meaning i attached was a blessing it opened up many opportunities for me just like covid and everything else going on now so many people are attaching different meanings like social justice questions right people attach a certain meaning to it and other people attach another meaning to it so now you have people who can't even communicate so i would say right now if i was coaching anybody which i do is you know just look at the meanings you're attaching to something and, and, and I'll leave you with this. The biggest lesson I got out of this whole thing, and I talk about, I talk about this now, was my change in worldview. And what, is I, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is this. I, and this came to revelation for me when I was in the green room of Good Morning America with some other passengers and the crew. And I referenced slightly this. Somebody went into a, a very emotional situation. And I'm here going, What's wrong with this guy? We're on national TV. We survived the plane crash. Man, we're lucky. We're blessed. Yeah. Well, I didn't find out till later. I started judging. I found out later he was—he lost his job and was going through a divorce. And I started realizing in my life, Brian, how many times have I judged somebody so quick before I knew their backstory? It's cost me money, jobs, relationships, whatever. I said, if I could change that one thing in my life, just become less judgmental, how could that affect my life? And I started doing that. And all of a sudden, I'm speaking to the Supreme Court. I'm doing things that I never thought by changing that one thing in my worldview. 
become less judgmental. So right now, my if I was coaching and sharing the last moment was right now, become less judgmental with people. You don't know what they're going through right now. And that's why I was so intentional on in calling five people a day last year. I wanted to find out what people were going through so I could have a read. So I knew what was going on. I could get the vibe. So I knew how to relate and communicate with people effectively. And it's taken my, my career a whole different direction. Wow. So powerful. So, so powerful. Dave, man, I can't thank you enough for, for taking time to be with us today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Tell folks how they can find you if they if they want to reach out to you for coaching, they want to reach out to you for other things. How can folks get a hold of you and, and connect with you? Well, thank you, because here's, here's a couple of ways. Number one, on LinkedIn, every week I write new content because of from my it's coming from my new book. So check me out on LinkedIn, David Sanderson on LinkedIn. Just check that because you'll get new content on how to turn turmoil into triumph. Or just go to my website and email DaveSandersonSpeaks.com on my email, on my email through my website. But Brian, I, what I would encourage right now is I uh, I'm committed to teaching what Bill taught me because the last thing he told me before he passed away was don't let this die with you. Mm. And for 20 years, I didn't do anything with it until I found it and told my current mentor, Don. And he, he said, yeah, this is the time, right? You weren't ready for it in 1997. So I think the reason I didn't die that day, Brian, is because I had not filled that, filled that promise to Bill. So now if, I, if, if anybody is interested in learning what all this, this, what I learned from Bill and Tony Robbins and these other people I've been around, I'm going to teach 10 people this content. I'm going to immerse them for a whole year into what I learned. And the only commitment I really make, you know, after we go through this process is you commit to teaching 10 other people because my commitment is I want to teach this to a million people in 10 years. And I'm looking for 10 people who want to help me do that. So I'll leave people with that. If they're interested, check me out and we'll have a conversation. That sounds fantastic. Dave Sanderson, what a privilege, what a pleasure it's been to have you on the Intentional Encourager podcast. I am so grateful for your time today. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Brian. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, at any time, any place can be an intentional encourager.